Welcome to The Waggle, the official podcast of the Canadian Football League. It is that time of year in Canada. Snow is on the ground and football trophies are about to be hoisted up in the air. That's right. This is The Waggle. I am Donovan Bennett. I am super excited for what sets up to be two really compelling football games and potentially three if you throw in some U Sports love and are watching the Vanier Cup as the appetizer the Saturday for two big games in the CFL on Sunday. The first of which is the Eastern Final. We're going to break that down right here on The Waggle. Today, joining us will be Marshall Ferguson, who actually called a national semifinal in U Sports last week, and his attention now is focused primarily on the CFL, and why not? Ticats, Argos, Hamilton, Toronto, the rivalry, really, it speaks for itself. So, no matter what colors you're wearing, and this is a rivalry that splits households often, make sure you are there for the scenes at BMO. As these two teams, whenever they play, I'm going to say the sports radio cliche thing, you throw the records out, but literally you have to throw the record out because there wasn't much between them this year. So I'm fascinated to see who comes out of the East on top. But to figure out how Hamilton and Toronto might be able to get to a great cup, let's check in with Marshall Ferguson right now on the way. All right, we're down to four teams in the CFL, and it might as well be rivalry week because both teams and fan bases have a lot going into this and not just who gets to the Grey Cup. In Argos, Hamilton is the East final. And when you look at the fact that the Argos won three of the four contests, but they only are plus eight in the uh, aggregate throughout the year, it shows you just maybe how close these teams are, or we just really can't make sense of the matchup and how these teams have performed. When you look at this matchup, what first comes to mind? For me, it's how quirky this thing is. It's the the word that keeps kind of circling around in my mind, DJ, because I'm I'm like you trying to sort out who has the advantage or what looks right or who's going to be the star player in this one. And I love CFL playoff football and really playoff football at large because there's often names that pop up that you just don't expect to be the difference makers that end up changing the game. But when I I think of how we got to this moment where A, the game is in Toronto and B, it's Toronto against Hamilton. Like I feel like people that don't love or follow closely the CFL will just say, well, what's the problem? There's four teams, they're all in the East, and you've got a pretty high probability when there's only four teams at play to have two of these teams playing against each other. Okay, sure. Yeah, Ottawa had a difficult year this year, so they weren't really part of the equation. But back at the start of the year, when people asked me about Toronto and and to analyze them, I said, I have no idea what they're going to become. Like, I thought Nick Arbuckle was going to be the quarterback throughout the year. If anybody was going to be traded, I thought it was going to be McLeod Bethel-Thompson. All of these names came in from Sean Oakman to Coney Ealy to Cordero Law to Charleston Hughes to on and on and on. It goes on the defensive side with Cam Judge and Enoch Mwamba. And and you see all of those names and people were like, well, what are they going to be defensively? I'm like, I don't know. It's a science experiment. Like, they're throwing a bunch of these volatile, interesting, talented players together And they're trying to create a team. And as we've seen in recent history, whether it be with, you know, LeBron trying to create super teams in basketball or otherwise, 
when you throw a bunch of talented people together, it doesn't always immediately equal success. And for the Argos this year, they've been so, so good at home, but they should have lost more than the game on the Tuesday night against Edmonton at the end of the regular season at home. Like, they should have lost to BC if Jimmy Camacho can hit any of the three field goals in the final five minutes of that game. They should have lost to Hamilton in the Labor Day rematch at home if Michael Domagala doesn't hit the upright, which, again, kind of amazing circumstance to have him going back into the kicking role for Hamilton after they let go of Taylor Bertolette. And Domagala looks really good in the Eastern semifinal, but now he's got to return to the scene of the crime of the doinking the upright for the extra point at the end of the Labor Day rematch game to try and take down this team again. It's like if he hits that extra point and the Ticats take the lead, are we even talking about this game being in Toronto? Like, what would week 15 between these two teams have looked like if Hamilton had won that and they were actually up at that point in the season series 2-1 and it was Toronto that was trying to equal it out at 2-2. The fact that they're playing a fifth time is magical to me because it's just such a strange matchup where every game has felt different. It's taken on a different tenor. Hell, it's used different quarterbacks in most of the games that they've played against each other this season. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for it. But I got to tell you, trying to analyze this and break it down based on the knowledge I've accrued from covering the Ticats and the Argos in the previous four matchups this year, it's kind of hold on to your seat and, and get ready for a wild ride. There's not a whole lot of correct predicting that's gone on between these two groups. Yeah, good luck predicting much that's happened in the CFL this week. And when we look at the semifinal in the East, to be a bit prescriptive of what we might see in the final, one thing I would not have foreseen to be the case, that front four in Hamilton was going to hold William Stanbeck to 29 yards rushing. This is the best back in the league and probably, along with Winnipeg, the best rushing attack more broadly in the league, which brings me, because I'm a running back, to the running game and you know, we're getting <laughs> December, December football and cold weather. So you've got, you know, the duo of Sean Thomas Erlington and obviously Don Jackson has been a revelation. I, I feel like they need to find ways to get him the ball more. And then you've got really a committee in Toronto that has turned into the Foster show because of the lack of health of John White. When, when you look at the ground games how do they stack up yeah for me it's again this is part of the the intrigue and the the quirkiness of this matchup is that you've seen throughout the year like if, if we look at other teams in saskatchewan it's been william powell like he's been the guy in winnipeg even with andrew harris down who's it been well we know that it is brady Oliver in first johnny augustine is the second guy in in that spot heck you even go to i mean montreal obviously they use william Stanback heavily but they had a formula where it was like, well, okay, when he was out for a little while, Cameron Artis Payne comes in and he plays at a high level. And then we got Jezrin Antwi, the Canadian from the University of Calgary. He's going to give you a little bit of juice once in a while late in the game. And you see the playoff matchup where it's like they're mixing and matching at fullback. It's Spencer Moore and Christoph Normand with those three backs that I just mentioned. There were formulas. Like it, it was systematic. It was, I knew when guys were subbing in, subbing out. It made sense. I have no idea what Toronto's going to do with their backfield. Like, this is the amazing thing if you're game planning, if you're the Tiger Cats defense. And again, I don't think that they necessarily are going to look at this and say, we would build one game plan for John White and another game plan for Cameron Scarlett or AJ Ouled or. But I do think you have to build a different game plan around DJ Foster because, as you mentioned, he's dynamic and he's different. Like, he can do a little bit of everything. But does a DJ Foster outweigh 
the downhill slashing of Don Jackson and the multiplicity of Sean Thomas Erlington? I don't know if it does at this point. And that's where I'm kind of at is if they can come out with something that's different, maybe even an Antonio Pipkin package in this ball game as the backup quarterback to, to McLeod Bethel Thompson, and he can use his legs to kind of work off of DJ Foster, that might be the difference in the running game where they add more variety. But do you really want to take the ball out of the hands of your quarterback, especially when he's running a lot of RPO stuff and trying to throw those quick slants and read off linebackers? And because if you put in the backup quarterback and treat him almost as a running back who can throw once in a while, then you're basically limiting the ability of your offense to flow as it has throughout the year. And doing that at playoff time is kind of scary. So I just think that DJ Foster... He has a lot of success at BMO Field. Our producer, Kyle Scott, was mentioning this before. He's got four touchdowns, two receiving, two rushing, and he's got all of them at BMO this year. And, like, I've been there a couple of times when I've seen him touch the football. And, actually, I had a friend who was at the Labor Day rematch game that I mentioned earlier with the Domagala kick that hit the upright. And Foster had a, kind of a jet sweep touchdown in that game where a little pop pass out in front of him. And he takes off to the left-hand side, cuts back, and gets into the end zone. And I had a friend who was at the game at BMO who texted me and said, when you watch DJ Foster live, he just looks different. And that's that's the thing I always feel when I go to a U Sports game or I'm watching a national semifinal like the UTech Bowl that I called this past weekend. Is Certain people just jump off the page to you or jump off the film to you and say, that person is really talented. They're a difference maker. DJ Foster's been that since the start of the season for the Argos. And at various points, I mean, even a game I called this year on TSN, he, he basically was asked to touch the ball, be it on check down screens or running it, about 18 of 20 plays down the stretch. Like Dinwiddie basically said, hey, man, it's the Ottawa Red Blacks defense and we're up by a couple of touchdowns. You're just going to grind out the fourth quarter. And they just <laughs> gave it to him every single play. And he answered the bell and he grinded out the clock and they got the win. So... I heard Orlando Steinauer say at the end of the Eastern semifinal that the regular season is information gathering season. And for me, that felt like Toronto at various points this year has said, okay, can DJ Foster do this out of the backfield, run a route on a well linebacker and beat him in man coverage thing? I've seen that this year, so check, yes. Can he carry the rock if we have to grind some clock at the end of the fourth quarter in a playoff game? I've seen them try to do that with him. The answer is yes. And so they've checked all of these boxes, but it's like, this is going to fall on Don Jackson to try and outplay DJ Foster if that is indeed the matchup we see. But the secret sauce is you get down inside the 10-15 yard line and Sean Thomas Erlington will like, he'll line up as a wide receiver. Or the Ticats will go with a full house backfield and Nikola Kalinich, the fullback, will come in. So there's, there's a lot of potential for this to be an amazing chess game between these two teams. But it comes down to how much of a difference maker can Foster be? And then how much does Ryan Dinwiddie want him to be a difference maker with the offensive line of the Argos going up against a group in that front four that you mentioned, shut down William Stanback? Give football fans across the rest of the country a little window in you know what the vibe is, not only in the city, but in the organization when you, you talk about the Tiger Cats. This is a group that's been to three straight East finals now. They've been on the doorstep of winning the Great Cup. They've lost Great Cups in blowout fashion and heartbreaking fashion recently. There's a core on this team who's been so close for a while. And now this year, the Great Cup is in Hamilton. And in order to get there and potentially win it, they won't even have to leave the province. And this week, quite frankly... 
there might be as much, if not more, black and gold in the audience than there is mm -hmm. double blue in Toronto. What is the understanding expectation angst like among the Tiger Cat faithful? Yeah, I can only speak to it essentially since I've been covering the team when I was on radio in Hamilton. And so I go back to 2014, I was playing in the Vanier Cup and it was that double Hamilton weekend where we lost to the Montreal Caravan. And then the next day I drive back to Kingston with my parents to go watch the Grey Cup and Hamilton ends up losing when Speedy B has his return touchdown, of course, called back against the Calgary Stampeders. And since then, you know, I've 2015, been around the team, successful, couldn't get the job done, you know, some quarterback struggles down towards the end of the season. 2016, talented roster, couldn't get over the top. 17, real struggle. Like, I think we, we all know 2017, starting out 0-8, being in a bad spot. June Jones comes in as a consultant, ends up taking over down the home stretch of the season, and then you move into 2018, and that's where I feel like the group that, that we're talking about now and their Grey Cup experience, because like 15, 16, 17 wasn't really them. Like that wasn't all because obviously they didn't make the Grey Cup in those three years, but that wasn't really like the home base of, of this core. Yes, Simone was around, and yes, there were some other guys that were like new to the organization, like Mike Daly, for example. But I look at it as 2018, they're running up and down the field and scoring like crazy. And it's Philip Lolly, I believe, a defensive coordinator alongside June Jones, who's running the offense. And they're putting up all these points. And then they go into Ottawa without Brandon Banks because he got injured late in the season in a game against the Red Blacks. And they go in there and Trevor Harris throws for six touchdowns and whatever yards he did. And just Masoli throws it directly into the chest of two defenders and they get obliterated. And that day in 2018 in the Eastern Final was one of the most disappointing outcomes, I think, for this organization probably dating back to the 2014 Great Cup. Like that stretch from 15, 16, 17, 18, that game is the one that really hurt them. And it drove them forward into 2019 where they're like, okay, we're going to evolve because we're not just going to be this throw it up and down the field. June Jones is out. Orlando Steinauer comes in. He knows the organization. He knows everybody in the front office. He knows how to work with them. They build out a draft, choirs players that they want to use that fit the style because they're going to be here for the long haul. So let's start digging in. And they do. And in 2019, they end up finding this incredible magic of, we're just not going to get beat at home. Like, it doesn't matter what the scenario is. We are going to just find a way at home because this is where we want to base our success. And then we'll strike out sometimes on the road, but we'll take our shots out there as well and get as many as we can. And so they built this organizational culture when Steinauer came back in that felt fresh and new, but it was driven by the anger of 2018 and the way that they lost in that Eastern final to Trevor Harris. And then you get into the, the Grey Cup, obviously crushing defeat to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in 19. It felt a whole heck of a lot like the 2018 Eastern final. So you see the similarities there. 2020, they don't play a season, and here we are in 21. So, I mean, <laughs> when the Ticats end the season... In the past two runs to the Great Cup, they've tended to do it pretty spectacularly when they do end up dropping out. And it's obvious that only one team ends the year as the victor and the champion and all the rest. They have not done that, as we know. But it's much more than that. It's a mentality of them trying to overcome these demons of 14 with Speedy B, of 18 with Trevor Harris, of 19 with Andrew. I mean, you go on and on and on. It's just like they have to find a way to finally close this chapter of their organization's history and say all those demons are behind us we're champions 
now we can carry forward with a sense of relief and freedom to accomplish anything that we want moving forward. And I feel like that's where they're at. So yeah, there's pressure. You really felt it, I think, right before kickoff. There was a great video that was played in the Eastern semifinal that was like an orchestra, kind of like opera version of Paint It Black. And it was just a bunch of, of shots of Dylan Wynn and Ja'Garrett Davis and Simone Lawrence and Tunde Adelike and Jeremiah Masoli just standing you know, in a video shoot in a tunnel somewhere with these metal chains around their neck. And it was the blackout and it was Tim Horton's field and the snow was falling and you couldn't see where the sun was because it was way too cloudy and thick and the wind was blowing and you felt the playoff energy. And it was like, that's the type of thing that they want to come home to because they've never had a chance to have one of these epic wins at home. Like they lost on the road in that 18 final in Ottawa. They lost in BC place in 2014 in the Great Cup. They lost in Calgary for the 2019 Great Cup. They love playing at home, DJ. Like they feed off of it. I think as much as the Riders do, as much as the Bombers do, is kind of like the top three home field advantages. And they know that they got to find a way to overcome their past demons to beat Toronto if they're going to come home and get that advantage that's powered them to so many wins since Steinar's been the head coach. I think I saw the other day he's 16-2 and as the head coach of the Ticats at home at Tim Hortons Field since he's taken over. So the thing that's in the way of this, I know we in the media make a big deal about the idea of home field advantage and Hamilton has the chance to come home, but that's real. If they can get through this game and conquer the Argos after losing them three to four times, they come home to a massive advantage. And Winnipeg's a hell of a team, and if they come out of the West, it's a daunting challenge. But the home field advantage in a Grey Cup with the amount of energy I felt in just the Eastern semifinal might be enough to give Hamilton a chance in that game. Yeah, the scenes would be wild. I can't wait if it ends up happening. Before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your perspective on another potential iconic matchup in Canadian football that we have this weekend, and that's the Vanier Cup. And two storied programs, two head coaches with real CFL ties, and two teams with, from my perspective, future CFLers all over the depth chart. When you look at the Western University Mustangs and the real power from the actual West, the Saskatchewan Huskies. What are you thinking of as we get back to having a Vanier Cup championship once again? I think if you are a fan of Canadian university football and you live in Ontario and you think that Western is the end-all be-all of the football universe, you are sadly mistaken because you have not watched the Saskatchewan Huskies play football in 2021. They are going to give Western absolutely everything that they can handle in this ball game. And it's not as though Saskatchewan is perfect. And it's not as though Western is perfect. Like they are imperfect organizations and groups of young men that are coming together and try and chase championship. Whoever wins this game is going to earn it because they will have absolutely proven that they can beat the very best in front of them. Because I believe Saskatchewan and Western are the two best teams in the country this year, based on everything that I've seen. And I mean, in terms of CFL talent across the board, the biggest thing that jumps out to me is the linebacking core for Saskatchewan that's going to be tasked with trying to stop that Western running game that's been so incredibly dominant as always throughout this year. They've got the bodies to do it. Like for the first time all year, I really think that Western's going to go up against like Riley Pickett is a great defensive end. He's a third year. 
250, had six pressures in the Hardy Cup in a playoff sack. He had another one in the UTech Bowl this past week. Like in the middle of the field, they got number 95, Jonathan Leggett, and he's all of 6'2", 300. And he's in his fourth year. Like, they're veterans up front. Bell that's on their defensive line is a fourth year at 6'3", 275. Nathan Cherry is 6'3", 245 in his fourth year. Led Canada West in quarterback hurries and quarterback hits this year. Like, it's just they have a group up front that can compete with everything the Western's throwing at them. And then, of course, anytime that you have a team that's coached by Scott Flory, you're going to have a great offensive line. And I was doing the math on this before the game was played in the UTEC Bowl this past week. Their offensive line is as big as the Saskatchewan Roughriders offensive line, which makes total sense that Scott Flory would be recruiting these guys and showing them the pipeline of you come to my school and I'll find a way to get you to the Canadian football league because you got the size and you got the body composition. Like these are a bunch of tall athletic offensive linemen where the weight totals are staggering and the height is just, they got these incredible builds. But then he refines them and he teaches them how to play the game and he gives them his life experience of being in the CFL. He won two Vanier Cups when he was a player with the University of Saskatchewan. He's a Canadian Football Hall of Famer and isn't coaching really all about once your body no longer gives you the ability to play the game at a high level, passing on that knowledge to the next generation. He's doing that as well as anybody in the country, including Greg Marshall who, by the way, does the exact same thing, passes down his knowledge to all of these people, whether it be coaching staff, running backs, otherwise, at Western, and says, here's how you do this. I know because I've seen it work forever and all the success that he's had. But I'll finish this by saying, for people that are interested in watching the Vanier, watch the offensive line for Saskatchewan because Noah Zare is their left tackle. He's in the draft this year. I think he's a first-round lock. He's six seven three thirty, and he moves really, really well. They got a first year at left guard who's a little bit undersized. Their center's a little bit undersized. But if you watch the UTEC Bowl closely, like whether it was Colton Clausen touching the ball, who, by the way, is also drafted 69th overall by the Montreal Alouettes, or Adam Mackhart, who's another draft-eligible player this year for the CFL, their running back who had 52% of their offensive touches in the UTEC Bowl this past week, the right side of that offensive line is where they were attacking. And why? It's because Connor Bergloff has been drafted by the Ottawa Redblacks 24th overall in 2021. He's 6'3", 300 fourth year. And then Nicholas Sumick is 57th overall in 2020. He's all of 6'8", 335 as a fifth year. So on the right side of that offensive line, it's two CFL guys that have already been drafted, big bodies and seniors, and they've got a senior running back running behind them Western better be ready, man. Uh, they better be ready because it's it's going to be physical up front in a way they haven't seen. And if, if Western ends up coming out on top, DJ, then they're going to have earned it because you don't play a team like Saskatchewan that's coached as well as, as they are without earning every single snap and every single victory. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. You had you know a great ball game to call in the UTEC. I'm hoping the Vanny Cup lives up to and maybe even – uh, exceeds that we are handing out football trophies in Canada this weekend and obviously the big one uh, still to be handed out next weekend in Hamilton I can't wait thank you so much Marsh thanks Donovan good to chat with you so you heard it from Marsh himself so many riveting storylines both obviously in the Vanny Company sports but also in the Eastern final and if you 
want a little bit more context, go to CFL.ca. Chris O'Leary has the five storylines for both the Eastern and Western finals. And speaking of the Western final, if you, you want a very similar breakdown of that. I'm sure you get it by now. But we're going to be talking to Pat Steinberg coming up on this very podcast. So pay attention. Make sure to continue to refresh. Or if you haven't already, subscribe as we're going to break down a playoff edition of the banjo bowl as saskatchewan and winnipeg will do battle in winnipeg online we've got a lot for you not only did chris o'leary write about the five storylines but we're going to have all of the post game analysis as well coming out of both these games so stay tuned to cfl.ca throughout the weekend and if you want a push alert for what's going on make sure you're following us on social media get those notifications on at cfl is the handle on instagram on twitter if you use facebook feel free to follow us there as well i'm donovan bennett and i would really appreciate if you enjoyed this podcast to tell a friend but also like favorite share and give us five stars because who really wants anything less than five stars it is going to be a five-star weekend on football Hope you enjoy it. Looking forward to talking to you about it next week. The Waggle, the official podcast of the Canadian Football League.